following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. It's always a privilege to be invited to ICC, and this time when my baby brother told me that he was going to be a little tuckered out after his trip, I of course felt a brotherly instinct to help him out, and it's a special privilege a treat to be here for the first time preaching in your new home, and uh, it's a beautiful place. I think it's a great atmosphere for you guys to be growing in, and we were just really uh, overjoyed for you guys at Harvest. We'd ask for your prayers as well. We're looking pretty um, intensely at a number of building options for ourselves as well, and uh, I can't say that it's been my favorite part of doing ministry. Uh, I don't enjoy the whole looking for buildings part of it, but it's a necessary thing, and we really need the guidance of the Lord. So if you'd be praying for us as well, we'd be grateful. Um, a lot of you know who I am already, and even if you don't, it totally doesn't matter if you know me at all. So I don't want to spend any more time talking about me or who I am. I, I want to just dive right into the Word of God. I, I think there is something in here this morning that God may really want to say to all of us. The passage this morning, and by the way, the title of the message, can you see that? It's God's Shaping Work. And I want to draw from a very, um, very familiar passage of Scripture, but I want to focus in on three of the verses in that very familiar text. I think it's a very familiar passage, but I also think that it's one that's quite often misunderstood or incompletely understood. And I think that I, for many years, incompletely understood it and taught it as less than what I think it was meant to be. And so I want to unpack this passage and these three verses in particular with you and bring what I think are some very encouraging, life-giving insights. And the very first, uh, why don't we read through the text first, okay? And it says, Romans 8, I'm going to look at verses 28 to 29 and then verse 37. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then several verses later, in verse 37, he writes, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I basically have two points that I want to share with you today, two observations that have um, deeply affected the way I understand what the purpose of this Christian journey is in many respects. And the first of those is that God always works for our good. He is always working for our good. If you look at verse 28, it's, it contains one of the most familiar phrases in Scripture. And that phrase is that in all things, God works for our good. At the face of it, that, on the face of it, that's a very encouraging, positive-sounding phrase, isn't it? In all things, God is working for our good. But I think the more you think about a phrase like that, the more tension starts to rise in your heart. 
Because when you hear a phrase like that, it, it seems to be right. It, it sounds true. But on any given day, it won't always feel true, at least not for you. Do you ever feel that when you see everybody else around you raising their hands and singing and everybody seems so into God and, and they, you see the goodness of God written on their faces, but then you think about your own life. And it's like a cloud follows you everywhere and rains on you 24 hours a day. It seems like you, among all the people in the church, seem to be singled out for unfortunate circumstances, for more than your fair share of trials and difficulties. And so when you hear a phrase like that, it can start to rub you the wrong way a little bit, like a small pebble in your shoe that over time begins to irritate you more and more. We, have an, we had an elder at our church in, in the early years of our church who um, used to always preside our services, and he'd start every Sunday, I mean, every single Sunday. He, I think he thought he was in the American South, but he would always start with, all, God is good all the time. And we were supposed to say what? All the time, God is good. And he would make us say it every Sunday. But I can honestly tell you, there were some Sundays where it was a little, those words choked a little bit in my throat because I can't always say with honesty that it felt true to me that God was good today in my life. And so we got to unpack that because I don't think it's ever untrue that God is good and that he's always working for our good, but we have to understand exactly what that means. I think part of the reason we struggle to accept a truth like that is that we often get things backwards. What I mean by that is we try to understand God by carefully examining our lives. We're trying to figure out what kind of God is this, and the way we try to get the answer is by looking at what's happening to us and trying to figure out based on that, is God good or not? So put more simply, very often we say things like, if Life is good. God is good. Right? So when, when people ask you, how are you doing, you usually think about your circumstances. You don't think about the, the eternal God who is always securing your future and has your back. We always think about circumstances. Am I in a period of triumph or tragedy? Are things up or are things down? And if we're honest about it, I think most of us, in the back of our minds, see life as sort of a ticker tape, you know, like a, a stock ticker. Today, my stock is up, but then this afternoon, oh, it went down. This morning, I woke up, all prepared for my daughter's graduation party. The house was decorated. All the guests were coming, and then it started getting darker and darker outside. And by the time the party was supposed to start, it was raining, and we had an outdoor tent set up and tables and chairs and it was pouring rain at the start of the party. That's not hypothetical. That happened to me yesterday. So we often think of just like life is this little stock tickers. Up, no, it's down. Up, and it's down. And it's, it, it gets you a little bit dizzy trying to figure out where is God in all this? Is God good or isn't he? And if your starting point is I'm going to determine God's goodness or not goodness by looking at the ups and downs of my story, I don't think we're ever going to find lasting peace. If God is good when life is good, then when life is bad, God is what? Maybe we don't have the guts to say God is bad, 
But we might say things like, well, it seems like God has forgotten about me. Maybe he feels distant or he's just too busy answering other people's prayer requests. I don't think he heard mine or I'm not God's favorite. We say things that are a little easier to stomach, but really what we might be thinking in our hearts is when life is good, God is good. And when life is bad, if we really had the courage, we might be tempted to say things like, I think God is kind of bad, at least to me. Like he's a good father to my siblings. He's not such a good father to me. Is that the way you sometimes process your relationship with God? See, I think the important starting point of a relationship with God is not to look at our lives and then to weigh whether God is good or not, but to begin with a totally different starting point and accept as an exercise of faith that statements like God is good all the time are just true. I, I don't determine that by looking at my life. I, I begin by saying, if the, the word of God says it, I accept it to be true. And from that starting point, I try to process, how can that be true when I look at my life? I don't put on, the, the, I, I don't, you know, put on trial whether it is true. I accept that it is true. And then I try to understand my life through the lens of that truth. And that creates a totally different point of view when you're thinking about your life. That no matter what our circumstances are, we try to understand our lives by beholding God and not the other way around. There are certain truths that are always going to be true no matter what. God is good. God loves me. God is in control. God is able. Do you know that when you study scripture, you will, be, you, will, you will have it firmly established that those statements are always true in all circumstances for all people everywhere? And yet, if our starting point is not that act of faith, those kinds of questions won't be tried and true facts. They will be up for debate depending on what my day is like. Is God good? Well, we'll see. We'll see how he's doing today. So far, God, you're doing pretty good. But tomorrow is another day. Listen, doesn't it stand to reason that if God is the God of the universe, somehow in his character and nature, he has to transcend the ups and downs of my personal story? That if God is the God of the universe, he cannot be judged and defined based on the ups and downs of my personal journey. That at some point we have to accept in faith that God is greater than my story. That in fact my, my life finds its meaning when I look at it against the backdrop of a great God who never changes. Of whom it can always be said, he does love me, he is good, he is in control, he is able... Isn't that the right way to understand an infinite, eternal, almighty God? That doesn't mean I am without value, but I am one of seven billion people in one small speck in this universe. Now, in, on the cross, God conferred to me, nonetheless, great value. But what he's trying to say, I think, is that I cannot confine God to what my life is like. 
But then I have to understand my life against the backdrop of who God is. And so we see in verse 28 this phrase, in all things, God works for the good. I think this verse would have been a lot easier to swallow if it said something like, man, in a couple things, God is, God is working for the good. In many things, God is working for the good. In most things, God is working for the good. But it doesn't qualify it that way. What it says, and in the Greek it's even stronger, is in all things. There are certain words that in English don't convey the force that is there in the original language. This is a very declarative sentence. There is in everything, in everything, there is no human situation possible in which God cannot be working for our good. Whether it's triumph or tragedy, God is not deterred by whether our stock ticker is up or it's down. In all things, he is able to be working for our good. I think it's a lot easier to see the goodness of God when things are going well. Have you ever noticed that professional athletes, you know, the Christian ones who always put, Steph Curry, but he always first, <laughs> you can't help it. You just made an incredible play here. You know, on a, a, a three-pointer just goes in. You're like, oh, yeah, not me. It's God. And he does that. And you notice they always point up to Jesus when they've done something good. When have you seen an NFL receiver wide open in the end zone for the game-winning touchdown, hits him right in the numbers, no one's guarding him, and he drops it? And he goes, <laughs> Jesus, that right there. Everyone look at God. He's the reason I missed See, nobody does that because the assumption, the implication there is God doesn't live in the failures and the tragedies of our lives. You don't look for God in those places. Only when great things happen, we point up to God and say, that's, you know, look at the winning team. They're always like, Lord, Je I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ. You never interview the losers. I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ for that horrible defeat. We worked all, so hard all season and we lost. We lost. And I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Who says that? Because though we preach differently from the pulpit, and though we raise our hands and sing songs differently, the real theology on the street is God doesn't dwell in the tragedies and the declines of our life. He's only really visible and present when things are going well. I think Paul wants to flip that on its head and say, no, you've got it all wrong. The interesting part of life is not the up and down of the stock ticker. It's what God has promised to do in every situation, and that is to work for our good in all things. Now, before I move to the next point, I want to make one more observation here, and that is that this promise is not a blanket promise made to all humanity. Not every person breathing gets have this promise fulfilled in their life. But two conditions must be met. And he says, first, this is a promise for those who love him, and it's a promise for those who have been called according to his purpose. And I want to be careful how I explain this, because I don't think it means you have to love God as a payment in order to get this promise, but it means this promise is active only in the lives of those who have a certain standing with him, a certain relational posture with him. 
you can't be far from God, never yearn for God, be mindless of God, sort of apathetic about him, go, where are all his promises? Why is God not good to me? If our hearts so little yearn for him, if our wills are so little submitted to him, does it really stand to reason that God is going to be very visible, present, active in our lives every day? I think it's important to remember that the love of God is unconditional, but the blessings of God are always conditional. Because he's a good father, and what good father would bless his children unconditionally? You just punch your sister in the face, here's a new bike. Because in this family, you get blessed no matter who you are or what you do. Blessings just come no matter what. What would happen to a child who got blessed for everything he did? Would he grow up to be a wonderful person? He'd be a monster. You would raise a monster if your blessings were unconditional. Love must be unconditional. But blessings are always conditional, aren't they? So what he says is, first... This promise is active in the lives of those who have a relationship with God that is marked by mutual love. That they don't see God as some faceless cosmic superintendent, but they relate to him as loving father. That somewhere in their hearts is a regular experience of loving and being loved by God, and in their hearts yearning for him. Yearning the way you yearn for a lover Yearning the way you yearn for your hometown or a place that means something to you. If that's not part of your experience of walking with Jesus, something essential is missing from the experience. Because I believe that God awakens in in the hearts of those who are saved a deep love and yearning for himself. I don't think it's normal to be a Christian for many years and say, but I've never felt anything in my heart. I don't think that that is biblical Christianity. We can try to defend that position theologically and say, no, if you believe the right things, you are a Christian, but I just don't buy it. I, I don't believe it's possible to be truly saved, truly converted, truly become born again, and not feel anything in your heart for the Father. And so what he says is, if this is the nature of your relationship with me, that you know how much I love you and you love me, this promise is active in your life. And he also says that those who are called according to his purpose, meaning, I think, among other things, that at some point you have yielded yourself to him. That he's not just the one who has your back, he's the one who has everything. He has the reins to your life in his hands. That this is the God who is recognized in your life as the king, that you have acknowledged, I am not my own master, but I have a king, and I now want to live for his purposes. I think if those conditions are met, we can confidently say, God, I lay claim to this great promise that in everything that happens in my life, whether up or down, I can truly say you are working for my good right now because my life is aligned with yours in this way. So what exactly does it mean then? Because the the whole thing, if you accept everything I've said to this point, the whole meaning of this passage hinges on how we define the word good. If God is always working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, what is that good exactly? And maybe I can set it up by telling you a story. Um, I was just at this building a couple days ago. Anybody recognize this? 
just out of curiosity. What building is that, Pastor Peter? It's a psych building at U of I. My daughter is entering U of I this fall as a psych major, so she was registering for her classes in that building. And I spent a good deal of time in that building when I was an undergrad. <laughs> not, not for the reasons you're thinking. I wasn't in a padded room. But I wanted to make a little extra money, and one of the easiest ways to do it as an undergrad was to be a guinea pig for the psych department's experiments. So I signed up for almost every experiment that they were looking for students. Some of the things really, I think, affected me. <laughs> okay? But um, you could make eight bucks an hour, and back in those days, that was good money. So I remember one experiment in particular. Um, they advertised, come and take a 15-minute math quiz, and we'll pay you for the full hour. I'm like, I'm not a dummy. That's good math right there. So I, I signed up for it, and I go into this room, and there's about a dozen other people sitting in there, and a girl pops her head and goes, oh, we'll be with you in just a minute. Just hang tight, everyone. And I'm sitting there, and at first, you know, you're like, who are these people? I'll never see them again. So I didn't want to talk to them or whatever. But then 15 minutes goes by, and I'm like, well, there's the first 15 minutes. We should have been paid already. I haven't even gotten the quiz. So I start saying, what's up? You know, I start talking to the people. By half an hour, I'm starting to get a little irritated, and now we're, we're in the community sharing our frustration. This is ridiculous, man. That's the word you use when you want to swear, but you can't swear. This is ridiculous. Right? 45 minutes into this, that hated girl sticks her head back and goes, oh, sorry for the delay, folks. Listen, here's the quiz. Just take it 15 minutes. You'll be out. We'll still pay you the hour. And she gives us the quiz, and I look at it. Now, I'm not a math genius, okay? But this is a multiple-choice math quiz, and for at least three out of the ten questions, none of the choices were the right answer. <laughs> now I'm going, what the heck? These people can't run an experiment. They can't even do math. And I was so angry. And granted, I'm not getting a grade for this, but I got some Asian pride. I'm like, I still got to beat all these other 12 people. I don't want to look like an idiot. And so I'm just fuming, and at the end of it, I just put any answer, and I go, look, this is a stupid... And I was really angry, and the girl finally walks back and goes, everybody calm down, give us five minutes of your time, we want to explain something. Here's what she says. Truth be told, this experiment had nothing to do with math. What we're studying is waiting room behavior when people are frustrated. <laughs> We've been surveilling you with audio and video this whole time, Studying the group dynamics, who takes leadership, what kind of language is used, body language, posture. If you had told me that on the start, I would have played better to the camera. I would have at least known what kind of experiment this was. But they really did a good job of masking the true test and watching the real thing. And here's what I learned from that experiment. Sometimes I think I've got it all figured out what the real story is going on here. I know exactly what this is about. And I've totally missed the point. I've misinterpreted the significance of what's happening because I thought that what's happening to me was the real story, when in fact what's happening in me is the real story. Are you following me? We're so focused on what's happening to us as if that's the real story of our life's journey. This happened to me, and then that happened to me, and then this happened to me. And that's the way a lot of autobiographies read. Here's a list of all the stuff that happened to me. It's not that interesting to read a book like that because it's like, oh, sit down. Stuff happens to everybody. How many of you would stand up here and go, everyone, can I have your attention? Listen, 
stuff happens to me. Bad stuff happens to me. Hold on. Good stuff happens to me too. Do you want to hear about it? Sit down. Good stuff and bad stuff happen to all of us. That's not interesting. Maybe your bad stuff is really bad and your good stuff is really good, but that's universal to the human experience. And that's not, in fact, the real story of your life. The real story of your life is what all those happenings are turning you into, what they're shaping you to become. So I really believe that verse 29 unlocks this for us, and it reveals that the the way God works for the good is that he is always in everything making us more like Jesus. Look at verse 29. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. If you see at least three out of the four of my kids, you can see that they all are siblings. They belong to one family. The fourth one looks a little different than the rest of us. But, but three out of my four kids, it's like the, the resemblance among the siblings is undeniable. And that's the story here, is that one of the things God is after is that those who are saved, he is tirelessly shaping into the resemblance of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest thing He can offer us in this earthly journey. The eternal promise of redemption, of salvation, is a wonderful promise. It is the greatest gift on offer. But in this earthly journey, this thing he is holding out to us is, regardless of the ups and downs in your life, he will never stop working on this one agenda. And that he can use both the good things and the bad things to accomplish this unchanging goal. And that is to conform us into the resemblance of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I know for the pragmatists in this room, that feels a little bit like a jip, (laughs) like a bit of an empty blessing, because most of us prefer something a little more tangible. Great. I'm glad you're making me more like Jesus, but I would also like a Tesla. And I like a better job, and I would like my wife to be nicer to me, and I just want my kid to be better at sports. And, you know, like, so on and on it goes. You have a lot of other things you wish God would give you. And when you hear that the one undying desire in God's heart is to shape you to look like his son, it kind of can feel like an empty blessing. But think about this for a minute. Who do you know who is more truly beautiful than Jesus Christ? I mean, try this as an exercise. One day, take a blank piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, and on the left side, put down all the attributes that you admire and are drawn to in other people. I I did this one time. I just wrote all the things I love, positivity, courage, a sense of humor, humility, hopefulness, intimacy, friendliness, selflessness. I started putting all these attributes, and then on the other side of the page, put down all the things you can't stand in other people negatively, self-centeredness, and bragging, and arrogance, and hatred, and blah, blah, blah. And as you put all those on there, take a look at that list on the left side. All those attributes you find beautiful and winsome in any other human being. And then read the Gospels again, and consider what Jesus Christ is like. 
When you do that, what you'll discover is that hands down, Jesus Christ is absolutely the most beautiful person you could ever behold. That when you look at him, everything that is good in us, everything that you love in anybody else is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the promise of God for those who love him and are called according to his purpose is that it doesn't matter if your life goes up or down every single day in every human situation. What he wants to do is make you more beautiful like his son. I'm not sure why we would choose any other blessing over that promise. Let me put it more simply. Every one of us knows the difference between a beautiful person and an ugly person. I'm not talking about the face. I'm talking about that person you long to be around and that person you can't stand to be around. We know the difference between a beautiful person and an ugly person. And the promise of God for those who belong to him is I want to make you truly beautiful. And it doesn't matter what life throws at you, what you give me, I can use all of it to accomplish that one incredible purpose. Another way to think about it is this. Everything that happens in your life is shaping you into something. The person you are today is because life happened to you and it produced a result in you somehow. And now remember, stuff happens to everybody. So the identical things that happen to you have probably happened to someone else. What's interesting is that for the other person, a totally different result may have happened. So as the different things have happened to you, what have they shaped you into? What kind of person have you become because of life? One day, all of us are going to die, and then everybody who knew us and is still breathing will gather somewhere, and they'll have a funeral service in your memory, and someone will get on the mic, and they'll start telling the truth about you. I, I've talked to people, adults, who agonized at the point of their parents' funeral. Pastor Dave, like, I have to get up and say stuff. My family wants me to say something about my father, and I, honest to God, have wrestled and cannot think of something good to say about that man without lying. What a tragedy that the sum total of a person's life could be that their own son or daughter struggles to find one redemptive thing to say in memory of who they were on this earth. Apart from the shaping work of God, that will be our story too. You will just be shaped by what happens to you. So if bad things happen to you, you'll be shaped into a very bitter position. And that's the truth of most people apart from God, is that if there are more bad things that happen than good things, the net result is that you produce a very bitter, very sour, very angry, hurtful person. But as God begins to intervene and his shaping work begins to happen in our lives, he can do something miraculous. Even though bitter, a long string of bitter things happen to us, it doesn't have to produce a bitter human being. But that by the shaping work of God, even a long string of, of suffering and trials can produce an inexplicable beauty in us as people. So that people later on will remember us and say, I don't understand 
how they ended their lives so beautifully when all I could remember is bad things happening to them. I don't know how they survived what they went through, but I can honestly say the net result is I was blessed because I knew that person. They touched my life in a profound way, and I cannot understand the beauty I saw in their life apart from something divine that happened. God shaped them in a way that life cannot shape a person. Paul reveals for us in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that the way that God does the shaping work is through the power of his Holy Spirit. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, listen, we're not transforming ourselves. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which, what, comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the way this shaping work is happening all the time in our lives to make us more transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory is through his Holy Spirit. I think what that means is that the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts is constantly revealing what Jesus would do and think and feel and say in our place. In that still small voice and that gentle whisper, he is reminding us that there is a screaming voice from your flesh saying, no, take revenge. Get what belongs to you is rightfully yours. Hurt them back. And your your flesh is screaming all these things, but the Holy Spirit in you is saying to you in silence and quiet, saying, listen, but that's not my way. Jesus in this place will be different And then he begins to urge us in our innermost being, take that path. Submit yourselves to this. I know you can hear your flesh screaming, but you know in your heart of hearts that there is a better way Jesus points to. That if he were in your shoes today, he would act very differently. He would feel and think and speak differently. And the Holy Spirit in us urges us, reveals that to us. But then here's more encouraging news. In Romans 8.11, he says... The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living in you. So it's not like the Holy Spirit is just a a counselor just whispering good advice. He also brings with that advice the power to choose to be like Christ. I think maybe, maybe what we, we can say more simply is this. We are transformed into the likeness of Christ when we submit to the Spirit's leading in our hearts. Do you get that? That in that situation when your flesh is screaming and the Spirit is whispering, we become like Christ more and more when we submit to the Holy Spirit's whisper in our hearts. But also knowing this, every small act of submission to the Holy Spirit is met by God's amazing, unimaginable power to raise the dead to life. So God is shaping us into the the image of his son, but we participate in that process by submitting ourselves to his Holy Spirit and saying, what I want, regardless of which way my life is going, is that everything that happens to me would shape in me the beauty that I see in Jesus Christ. If that could be said of me at the end of my life, 
I feel like it would have been a good life and I would have brought glory to God and I would have seen his goodness displayed in my human journey. Let me close this way. Paul reminds us in verse 35 that a lot of bad stuff happens to us in life. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're spared from these things. He is writing to believers and he says there will be, he's, he's basically presuming hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. We will all face trials that will threaten to unravel us. I've walked with people through things I didn't think anyone could recover from. And, and here's the thing. When we're facing those trials, all we can think about is surviving and getting through it. Just I just need to see light at the end of the tunnel. I need to conquer this bad season in my life. And that's not a bad thing. We should want to triumph and survive. When you hear a diagnosis of cancer, when you hear that your spouse no longer loves you, when your child runs away from home, you know, when these horrible things happen, your boss says we have to let you go, all you can think about at that moment is, I got to get through this. But listen, non-Christians, apart from the saving work of God, triumph and conquer and survive rough trials every day. If the only goal we have is to survive and conquer the trials in our lives, we're aiming our sights far too low because people every day in this world, apart from God, are surviving and conquering. If you study the secular biographies all over the earth, what you'll come to learn is that there is this indomitable, amazing resilience to the human spirit. And that even apart from Jesus, people can get through a lot of crud. Not everybody who survives hard times is carried by Jesus. Sometimes they're carried by their own grit. That's just the honest truth. I don't want to spiritualize and pretend you can't make it without Jesus. Yes, you can. People make it every day. In fact, sometimes I think non-Christians are tougher than us. But here's the great truth. I believe that because of Jesus and the shaping work of God, we can do more than just conquer. I mean, how uninteresting. Hey, there were trials, and I made it. So? But imagine if we can say, there were trials, and I not only made it, but through this trial, God shaped in me a beauty that you only really see in Jesus Christ. That I didn't just make it, I grew, I was transformed. Never mind triumph and tragedy, I was changed as a person through this. I'm not just a cancer survivor, but cancer turned me more into the image of the beauty of Jesus Christ. I see life differently now. I exude a greater hope and peace and confidence than I did before. My heart is more open and sensitive to those who are suffering. I was changed by my cancer. I didn't just beat it, but I became like Jesus through it. John Piper writes a profound book that only John Piper could write and sell. Don't waste your suffering, basically, is what he's saying. Don't waste your, your cancer. Don't waste your suffering. Who says stuff like that except John Piper? 
don't waste your cancer. Like, man, shut up. But he's telling such a profound truth. Cancer happens to everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. But it doesn't always transform people into the glorious beauty and image of Jesus Christ. What a loss to us if all we do is struggle and survive. When in fact the promise of God for his people is that he will change us. Let me close with one last story, and my time is up, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you one last story. When my son Noah, the oldest, was nine years old, I had a day when he was misbehaving, and basically behaving like a nine-year-old, but I was, I had, was at the end of my rope, and I lost my temper, and I just tore into him. And he was goofing off with his siblings, laughing, and I walked in his room and said, Noah, you should be setting a better example. I told you to go to bed. What is wrong with you? You're a terrible older brother. I'm so ashamed of you. And I could see it in his face. His spirit is dying a little bit. He's like, what the heck, Dad? And the man who's supposed to guide him, teach him, protect him was just ripping into him. And he began to cry. And I said, I don't care if you're crying, if you're sad. You deserve it. Go to bed. And I walked out. And as I'm laying down, going to bed myself, I felt terrible about what I did. I was too proud to go back into his room and apologize. I sat there in my bed and thought, and my, my last thought before going to sleep was, God, I, I hate what I just did. I hate what I just saw in me. I don't ever want to do that to him again. And my last waking thought was, you got to change me. If I keep fathering like this, I'm going to destroy my kid. That night, I had one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had. And in that dream, I saw Noah die in front of my eyes. It was so powerfully real, I woke up and my pillow was soaking wet and I was sobbing, like really crying. And I didn't know what was happening. My face was all wet. And I realized that as I woke up, even when I was unconscious and sleeping, God was working on my heart. And I woke up in the middle of the night so grateful that it was just a nightmare and that my son was still alive. And I walked into his room in the middle of the night. I laid my hand on his forehead. I blessed him in the name of Jesus. And I pledged before God, I want to be more like you are to me in the way that I love my son. That day, I can honestly say, marked the most significant turning point in my relationship with my son. Today, we have an amazing relationship. Maybe his cousins can tell me the real story, but I think (laughs) Noah really loves and looks up to me, and I really love him. Joy, Luke, is is that at least partly true? (laughs) Joy, Joy's like, that's what you think. But I really think that was a turning point in our relationship. And what I was amazed by was even when I'm unconscious, God in my dreams is relentlessly shaping me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. What a God we have. That even in the ashes of our worst failings, he still keeps his promise. I will not ever stop trying to shape you into the beauty of my son, Jesus. You submit to me, and I will do this great thing in your life. So can I encourage you to get past looking at your life through the lens of triumph and tragedy and think instead that the great story of your life is transformation into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Can I invite you to bow? I just want to pray for us, and as the praise team comes back up, let's just pray.
just want to acknowledge that we worry a lot about the stuff that might happen to us. Perhaps secretly believing that the bad stuff will undo us and the good things will lift us up. How encouraging and life-giving to realize that in the hands of God, it really doesn't even matter whether the things happening to us are good things or bad things. Because he's such a master sculptor, he could use it all. Some of our greatest growth happens in the tragedies and the failures of our lives. What a great God we have. So let's focus on him this way and say, God, I invite you to do this work in me. Never mind if life goes up or down. I want in all things to be conformed into the image of your son. Can we just simply pray in faith and dependence that God would relentlessly continue doing that work and he would make us beautiful like his son. Let's pray that together.